Hello and welcome to the third episode of the Smart Business Hub podcast series. The aim of this series is to share inspiration with up-close and personal interviews and conversations with Australian business leaders. For today's Hubcast, I'll be speaking with the CEO of Accretion Investment Management um, Portfolio manager, manager, if you like, Peter Chapman. Um, so Peter's been in, in the industry for over 30 years um, in investment management. Um, and since 2009, he, or, and sorry, in 2009, he received an Australian Private Equity and Venture Capital Association Award for lifetime contribution to the industry. And I'll let Peter delve into, into his career a bit more as we get through the podcast, but first of all, welcome Peter. Thanks Carl, that's great, thank you for those kind words. Um, look, it's been a great journey and I look forward to sharing it with you via the uh, Hubcast. Thanks Peter. So. By way of background for for our listeners, I was lucky enough to be introduced or, or met, Peter actually introduced himself to me in a board meeting um, at Energetics going back a few years. And Peter, I think when I first met you, one, one thing that really captured me was how personable you were. Um, you know, in the business environment, and, and that's kind of the aim of this podcast, is to have a conversation with people outside of the, the corporate world. Um, is that I was instantly drawn to you because you were na- you were ac- you actually were interested in what I was working in. Um, you were quite personable and interested in me as a as a developing professional. Is that your natural approach to business? Uh, yes, I think it is because business is all about people. They're vital to all businesses. Uh, some businesses have more capital assets, fixed assets, and less people. You might take a a wool scow might have fifty million dollars worth of assets of nine people, but um, professional services firms would be at the other end of the spectrum, nearly all people, a few laptops and some office fittings and that's about it. And as the Australian economy moves more towards service industry, which is now 70% of GDP, the people become more and more important. Mm. So you better understand the people if you're going to contribute um, as a non-exec director um, and understand you know where their heads are at, and and uh, and how they see the business in a day-to-day sense. Yeah, that's a good insight. Um, and I suppose a segue to my next question. But one thing I've really noticed is I get a sense that that skill set um, is slightly being eroded. And I'm not sure. I'm interested in your thoughts on this. But I know for me personally, you know, things like smartphones. If I go to meetings or conferences, and um, you know, five years ago, you would you would naturally engage with people because you don't have the option of looking at your smartphone. Do you feel like you know that's that we that we're better connected in this age, or, or do you think we're losing touch with some of those those important core skills required in business? Well, that's a really good question. Um, that's a really good question. I um, well, look, we're certainly better connected if you look at the. Well, we're, sorry, we're more connected if you look at the number of avenues we've got to be connected at mobile email any kind of social media your question is are we better connected um, we've got the potential to be better connected because we've got more more ways of doing it and it sort of gets down to the information there's there's just ubiquitous information these days and the skill really is to be selective about which bits of information you tend to to process or look at and it's a bit the same with connectivity if you, you need to be, I think, more selective about who you um, communicate with. And personally, I think the next generation are pretty good at that. You mm. know, some, these young people who can manage 
4,000 followers on Instagram, sure. <laughs> they do a pretty good job of it. So they, I, I, think, I think we are better connected. Yes, there might be some teething problems with you know, the social habits of looking or not looking at your phone or having it turned off onto silent. But basically, I think the um, you know humans adapt, and I, I think it will. We are better connected. Yeah, sure. And, and again, I know for me, again personally, that I'm quite conscious of that. That just going back to that um, that instinct of of social engagement with people and sparking up a conversation, and certainly the you know I find that the older generation are naturally better than that. I think than you're under under thirties. Um, and I blame smart technology for that, but whilst we're better connected, it's something we need to be conscious of too, perhaps? Well, we do, because um, it, is, it is a change and there is the potential for us to, you know, all become part of our mobile phones instead of part of a community. But, mm. I don't know, humans are pretty adaptable and they naturally communicate, always have, since, um, you know, 100,000 years ago when they first started making sounds and creating language. So I think they will adapt and they'll end up using the devices to better communicate. That's that's my guess. I guess in 30 years' time we'll know. <laughs> we've got the tools. We've just got to be smart about how we use them, right? I couldn't agree more, yeah. So looking or swinging back to your, your bio, um, Peter, you, you've been investment in investment management pretty much your whole career, is that that's right? Pretty much. Um, I you know, did a Bachelor of Commerce and, and qualified as an accountant, um, in the early days, and um, then my first real job was uh, post an accounting role, was um, to be a lending officer in one of the big US banks, and that was pretty good in that it taught me how to analyse a wide range of businesses, um, and basically I was responsible for lending the bank's capital to these businesses, and making sure that um, bank got it back with their interest paid and so on and the American banks say you make the loans if it doesn't come back we fire you so it certainly focuses your mind right <laughs> um, but that after three years of, of, of working on the debt side of the balance sheet as I call it I then had an opportunity to go into investing private equity to invest um, it was Citibank at the time <clears throat> to invest their own capital in the equity of businesses which was um, much more exciting because you were then actually, you really had to understand the business because you were putting uh, the highest risk capital in. Um, if something went wrong with the business, the equity capital ranks behind the lenders and behind the unsecured creditors, behind everybody. So you really have to understand the companies and make sure that they have a good prospects uh, for the future over probably a five, six, seven year period. So it was challenging. Um, same rules applied as in the lending arm. If you made too many mistakes, they fired you. So you really had to, to focus on um, on analysing companies and working with the management and, and making sure that um, the equity investments ended up um, uh, performing well. I worked for... In that situation, we were investing Citicorp's own shareholders' funds, bank capital, um, after seven years of that, investing in small to medium-sized Australian businesses, by and large, mm-hmm. I then joined NM Rothschild, which was a British investment bank, and we were making the same kinds of investments, but this time we were investing um, other people's money, predominantly the emerging superannuation fund. I'm talking the early 90s, when um, compulsory superannuation had just started. So you are now... Um, 
responsible for uh, investing funds that belong to thousands and thousands of um, Australian workers. But was that that time of inception of super funds? Was that a pivotal moment or a, a, a really booming time for that sort of investment class? Or? It was a pivotal moment for the investment management industry, that's for sure, because it suddenly um, created this stream of capital being directed into super funds, uh, 9% of every wage packet in Australia, mm. um, which had to be invested. So you needed people who could, or you needed a larger number of people who could invest that, that capital. Because the er- initial um, super funds were by and large um, built around the, the union-based funds, so the, the Builders Labourers Fund or the Stevedores Fund and so on, um, there was actually a, an increase in the amount of capital available for unlisted companies rather than just the major stock market because the union funds were very super sympathetic to investing in growing businesses, small businesses, which could grow and therefore employ more people. So it was a double whammy in a good sense in that there was more money to manage and there was certainly uh, more money for investment in private businesses, whether they be early stage or even later stage businesses but which were not listed on the stock exchange. So there was a sort of a flourish of, of, of new and emerging businesses around that, that time that maybe got backing that wouldn't normally get backing? Or? Yes, I think so, because there was a, there was, with, with compulsory superannuation, there was a pool of capital that grew every year from the inflows. Um, and a small proportion of that pool, perhaps one, two, three percent, was being allocated to be invested in private businesses. So as the pool grew, the one, two, three percent grew, mm. and there was more capital available. Yes, yeah, and right. that's been the case ever since. Okay. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. Obviously, a, a historical moment in, in the Australian economy, right? Very much so. Yeah. yeah. Compulsory. I mean, that's why we have one of the largest and best developed superannuation industries in the world because mm. um, we've been at it since 1992. So, <coughs> so you're working for a private firm then and, and what about accretion? How did that come into the mix? How did that come about? Well, that was interesting. That's when I got a chance to, uh, to be my own entrepreneur. Um, I'd been chief executive of a private equity fund within the NM Rothschild Group, which was a British family-owned merchant bank. And they had a change of strategic direction and wanted to concentrate on their investment banking activities. And so I had the opportunity to buy out that business. Um, And 15 years ago, I um, packed up my desk and walked across the road to a new office and started accretion. Um, First of April, ironically, but uh, it ended up well despite an inauspicious starting date. Um, so that that was an opportunity to branch out on my own. I still managed funds for the same clients, and we still invested in the same kind of company. It's just that I was operating um, under my own banner mm. um, with partners um, rather than in a big, inside a big corporation. And what sort of time in your life was that? You know, obviously you would have had you know go out of that that security and. and you know, take on a bit of risk personally. Yeah. Did that did that intertwine with personal life and, and or anything like that, or was it was it for you? Was it the timing was right, or you just saw so much opportunity you had to go for it then? Um, no, the timing was a bit late actually. I was probably in my second half of my forties, and I wish that I could have done it earlier, but the opportunity didn't arise um, 
earlier. Right. So I had to wait patiently for three or four years until my employer was um, willing to sell me the business. Okay. Um, and then when that finally happened, it was with their blessing and with the blessing of the clients as well, which is very important. You've got to, you know, keep the keep the both parties happy um, to, to make the transition easy. So I would have liked to do it a few years earlier, but it didn't happen. And um, when it did happen, it was well founded because it, 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 all parties, there were a number of parties, had to be happy, and and they all were, including me. Mm. So it was tactical, <laughs> and you had buy-in from from key stakeholders. You needed yeah. to be happy with the decision. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Particularly the clients, you need you need them to be happy. And if you think about what an investment management, or particularly a private equity fund, do. They're there to channel money from probably superannuation funds or life insurance funds into small, smaller growing businesses. Mm. So you actually sit between two camps and you need to keep both sides um, happy. You've got the people whose money you are investing need to have confidence in you mm-hmm. and the people in whom you are investing need to also enjoy working with you otherwise the last thing they want is a shareholder that um, they don't find constructive. Absolutely yeah. yeah, two critical stakeholders that you need to manage Yes, indeed. and, and facilitate. Yeah, That's really interesting and uh, you talked you talked um, about you know having high stakes I guess when you're working for the banks um, because you, you know effectively it's you're risking your job or your remuneration by making bad investments or good investments either way. Um, after all your years of experience in this in this landscape, in your mind, what's critical for successful investment management? What's the kind of you know key pillars of that? Well, that's a good question too. Um, let's just break it down a little bit. So, first of all, you know, investment management is 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 really channeling money from the sources of capital to the 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 need, people who need capital, which is growing businesses. Mm-hmm. Um, Success, we should define that. Success is um, generating, I'd call it solid returns. If people wanted to generate 100% returns, they can go to the casino any day they want to. But <laughs> what, what investors want is you know, solid returns over the long term, meaning five to 10 years probably. Mm-hmm. So if success is, is generating, um, and, and in private equity, because you're taking more risk by investing in smaller companies, you need to get a higher return than if you're investing in the stock market, mm-hmm. in the Commonwealth Bank or BHP or something. And um, so the critical factors in getting the I think it comes back to discipline. You need to be very disciplined in the way, you the investment manager that is, need to be very disciplined in the way that you analyse the investment opportunities. And it's not just a matter of crunching numbers and looking at financials. You have to understand, <coughs> excuse me, the place in the sun that that company has, um, and that that place in the sun will continue mm. for the foreseeable future, meaning five to ten years probably. Yeah. Um, how it fits in with its customers and its competitors, and um, if there's any potential regulatory um, issues hanging over it. Uh, but most important of all, even when you've done all that, you've got to understand the people who are in the business and the management. Um, because at the end of the day, the investor is um, will be represented in the business but as a non-executive board member normally, mm-hmm. and you are really relying on the people in the business to make it a success. So you have to understand 
those people, where they've come from, where they want to go to, and try and get everybody on the same set of railroad tracks um, for the next five or seven years. So, so this, people's really important. So it's sort of yeah, it's kind of that age old thing of you spend two thirds of your time sharpening the axe, I assume. So a bit about you know obviously due diligence is number one, but um, market market insights and, and future planning of where you think that organisation is going. It's got the right people. So really a, a combination of. I suppose a bit of um, you know the side of your brain that does logical thinking, but too you know, a bit of instinct as well. But Very much so. I mean, you know, you can't run a human being through a computer program and and, and score them. You know, people have tried that. They've mm. tried to have these scoring mechanisms. Mm. It it doesn't work, in my opinion. You you have to um, you have to assess people, and they're all the businesses that they're in are all going to be different. The industries they're in are going to be different, and the people are all different. You know, some are going to have very strong um, um, technical skills and others have very strong creative skills. Mm. So you've got to try and weigh all that up. Um, One thing you've got going for you though in Australia is a fairly small market and pretty much the CEO of most businesses um, will be known by a large number of people. So you can talk around before you make an investment, particularly about the CEO and the senior management with talk to people that they've worked with in the past doesn't have to be their boss necessarily even their colleagues and you know people aren't stupid they they can assess the, the capabilities of an individual that they've worked with or or been a customer of or been a you know a, a supplier to so yeah getting the people right I say getting people right 60% of the of the equation comes back to that that age old thing of kind of who you know and yeah. stuff like that relying on your network so oh, that's yeah. that's really insightful thanks thanks for that one um another point i wanted to sort of delve into and, and get your insights on is you know on your website it, it, it talks about remedial management um, and basically going into underperforming um private equity or you know businesses that are, that are underperforming and you know going in there and, and effectively taking the reins and, and you know changing the path I only assume or I can only assume that that takes a really high degree of emotional intelligence um, you know when people are under pressure and things are not going well obviously the way we react can be mm. can be um, hot-handed so you know what, what's that like how's what's your experience been yeah. like in those situations well that's that's a good question I think you've got to recognize when you go into a problem a company that's got performance issues um, if you look at the emotion that the individuals are probably feeling, it's fear. Mm. You know, they're really scared. They're scared about their jobs or they're scared about their reputation or the loss of something they've built up. Um, so you've got to recognise that. And that can manifest itself in a certain number of ways. You might, you, might, you might experience, as the income, you might experience hostility or what might look like arrogance. But basically people are very, very unsettled and so you've got to recognise that and, and react accordingly. Mm. First thing you do is stay calm. <laughs> There's enough panic going on in the company usually, so you need to be calm mm-hmm. and consistent um, and you need to listen well. So um, at, at least for the first two or three months you need to be listening. Um, after that you do have to start forming views and making decisions. but. Initially, you need to listen um, and try and get to the bottom of what caused the problems. Was it just bad luck or was it bad judgment or were there exogenous factors that can be, need, to, need to be reacted to? Uh, but the end, 
end of the, and then hopefully that fear will subside and you start to then get a more collegiate approach to uh, as the mist clears a little bit and you start to everybody starts to acknowledge what went wrong mm. uh, which is hard that takes a while and then you have to start working together on a plan to get out of the swamp um, and then the fear drops away and you start getting back onto a more um, you know positive sort of footing I can only imagine you you know it must sit in the boardroom and, and eventually you have the sense of everyone gets a moment of clarity on the way forward which must be a, a real you know great team moment when you get around all those you know those emotions that, yeah. that might be getting in the way of success yeah um, yeah that must be amazing once you get to that yeah. point but yeah no it is it's um and it takes a while you've got to recognize that people aren't going to turn on a dime mm-hmm. you know it it takes months um, just to get to the bottom of probably how we got into this mess mm-hmm. and then you have to um, you sort of flip over and start. Now you also have to be honest with people, not initially because you don't know enough to be <laughs> to be honest. Sure. But after a while, when you do start to get a, a handle on what has really happened and what might happen, then you have to be honest with people. You can't gild the lily and say, "Oh, it'll all be right," and blah blah blah. Um, and people respect that. If you say, "Look, guys, you know this part of our business is underperforming," and maybe even worst case, it doesn't have a future then you have to start saying that. And people respect that. They're not stupid. They can tell if if something no longer has a place in the sun or it's been overwhelmed by a new technology or a major competitor or a regulatory change. Um, and I guess you've then got to say, well, can we fix it? If so, let's see what capital resources we need to put there to fix it. Mm. If we can't fix it, we're going to have to take the hard decision. Hard decision, yeah. And how have you personally developed those skills is it you know because it's not something you can go out and do a one-day course on um, it's really probably a bit of personal development I man, imagine or it does you know sort of can come naturally to some people but what's that been like for you is it literally just time in the seat or well it has been for me just time in the seat yeah I mean businesses you know they're all different but underneath them there's there's a few eternal truths if you like as poets would say mm-hmm. So there's principles that underlie all businesses, you know, having a good plan, recognising your strengths and weaknesses versus your competitors, you know, having a proposition that the customers actually want, mm-hmm. um, and having good management. So you can apply those principles. Um, the judgement, I guess, um, is when you've done that quite a few times and one of the great things about being in private equity is you get to see an enormous range of different companies in different industries. Mm. You know in my time I've been on the board of retailers, manufacturers, um, service companies, software companies and so on and so on and you can never be an expert in the operating details of all of them that's for sure but you can hopefully try and focus on the the principles that drive all businesses. which is more a framework to help a business succeed um, and, and focus on that. Somewhat, I imagine, a benefit that being outside of it, you know, like they talk about working on the business rather than in the business. Um, and I imagine through all those experiences, you've had the opportunity to meet some amazing people. Yeah, I've been lucky. Um, I've been lucky. And just thinking about working on the business, I mean, you do have to understand when you're a non exec director and an investor. Um, that you don't understand the nitty-gritties of the business. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and you never will because you're only going in to one day a week or something. So there's no way you can understand the dynamics of that business like the CEO can or the senior management in the, in the company. But once you understand that and then say, okay, I'm, I'm not going to be a major, I'm not going to get involved in the operating details, but I need to focus on um, strategy, helping make sure that the company has a good strategy um, and governors and that the right people are in the right boxes and that they're, they're doing their job. Um, and I was going to say trust. I imagine you have a, a great deal of trust for, you know, once you get the right management and stuff like that in, in place, it's yeah. about backing those people and getting behind them and trusting them. Right? Indeed. I remember um, early on a, a very wise old chairman said to me, in terms of the relationship between the chairman and the chief executive, um, he said you either have to back them or sack them. Mm. And... Um, that's it. You you have to work with <coughs> the chief executive and the management team, and if you get to the point where you think that's no long, you know that that's no longer feasible, you have to make the hard decision. Mm-hmm. Fortunately, that that has really happened in my career, and I've had, I hope, some great relationships with um, the chief executives and senior managers mm-hmm. in businesses um, over the thirty odd years. So coming back, I suppose looking at you personally, um, what drive, what gets you out of bed in the morning? You know, what what kind of aspects of, of uh, investment management gives you joy, and, and you know, you personally get reward out of out of doing what you yeah. do. Well, you know, the fundamentals of investment management is that you, as we said earlier, have to have to generate good solid returns for your. Um, the people whose capital you're entrusted with mm-hmm. because they're trusting me like I'm trusting a chief executive or a management team. Um, and particularly when, you know, just you think about who that money's coming from, it's not coming from some faceless um, organisation ultimately. It comes from individuals who are working away at their jobs and 9% of their salary or their wages going into the pool and a little bit of it goes into my hands to be invested on their behalf. So, you know, I enjoy the challenge of making sure I do that well. Mm-hmm. Um, I would feel terrible if I did it badly because those people whose money I'm entrusted with uh, are relying on good returns to enjoy a comfortable and dignified retirement when they eventually get there. So that's the main, you know, that's the main driver. But on the other hand, um, or on the other side of, of the coin, uh, I do enjoy working with the uh, underlying businesses that we invest in and seeing the people there develop. Uh, you know, watching CEOs develop, watching uh, management become board directors and see how they learn, mm. you know, the, the, the rules of that game. Um, and watching, you know, junior executives move up and become senior executives and get promoted to bigger jobs and so on and so on. So. That's a lot of fun, and watching the companies grow from one million dollars turnover to twenty million dollars turnover—it's that's that's the fun part of it. Yeah, yeah. But at the end of the day, the main responsibility that I have is to generate um, solid returns for hundreds of thousands, ultimately, of of Australian wage earners. But as you <coughs> pointed out, I mean that still comes back to individual people, as you you know, it, like you said, it comes back to the individual lives that are. 
parting ways with their hard earned, yeah. collectively as a pool, yeah, that's a bigger number, but it comes back to those people, right? Yep. And doing the right thing by them. There's people on both sides of the equation. Yeah. yeah, yeah. On, the, on the fund providing side and on the fund deployment side, yeah. absolutely. I want to just pivot now and talk a little bit about startups. You know, there's so much hype in the, in the startup world and so many great ideas out there at the moment. And, mm. And, and lots of average ones probably as well. I was at an IoT conference not so long ago and, and someone was giving some insights around um, uh, a startup conference they'd been to in the States and talking about, you know, smart underwear and smart hairbrushes and stuff we just don't need. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, aside from that, there's some really, really neat stuff going on. Um, and, you know, like as you pointed out, when that time around uh, Super coming into Australia, there was lots of opportunity around. Um, what would be your advice to, to you know entrepreneurs, young and old, trying to get something off the ground and trying to raise capital? Um, you know, what advice would you give to them in terms of what people are looking for and the things that really, really yeah. matter and count? Yeah. yeah. Um, well, my advice to entrepreneurs would be get it while it's hot. I mean, there is a lot of capital available for startups at the moment, and um, there's been a lot of talk about fintech, but it's generally available way more broadly than that. Mm. And in my time, uh, there was a there was a, a, a profusion of capital available uh, in the 80s, mm-hmm. and then in the dot com pre dot com uh, or dot com era, um, and again now this is I'm talking in an Australian context. So it's a great time for entrepreneurs who've got a good idea to be raising capital because sometimes those markets close up and you can have a really good idea but you can't get anybody to put, give you the money. Mm. Uh, not the case now. So I'd go for it. Um, and in terms of what you need to do, it's a lot of the things we've just talked about. You know, just having a technology won't get you there. You've got to have the next step. So how will that What's the place of that technology in the sun? What need is it trying to satisfy? Um, and who else might have a better one or might develop a better one? Mm-hmm. Um, and then do you have the people to run it? Now, in a fast-growing company, it's, it's a bit like, unlike a mature one, where you've probably got a management team in place and a structure. Yep. In a fast-growing one, you've probably got a founder and a CEO and maybe a, a chief technology officer yep. and a finance person but you're going to have to add over the next five years, if it does well, a huge number of, of, um, of people. So, you know, it's a, it's a huge challenge growing a, a startup company. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's not saying it can't be done. There are a lot of failures, it's true. But if you look back, just if I look back those three booms I mentioned, thinking of companies that came out of them. I mean, Cochlear, which is the hearing implant company. Up at Ryder, I think that's uh, That's probably, but these days, vast majority of its sales, I imagine, in the US and Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, 1985, we invested, um, we at Citicorp, invested $300,000 in Cochlear. Which would have been a big capital raising. Back then, a capital right? raising, absolutely, way before it was ever listed on a stock market. Yeah. Um, it's now got a market cap of around $8 billion. Um, Unfortunately, we don't still have those original shares, which we did. So, you know, that was a, that shows you what companies can do. Seek is another one that everyone knows. People looking for jobs, they go to Seek. Yep. Its first capital raising came during the dot-com boom. So just because a whole lot of companies failed that were set up during the dot-com time in the late 90s, mm. um, there were a few absolute winners. Atlassian's another one in more recent times. Atlassian, yeah. Now got a market cap of 
eight billion. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Started in two thousand two. So um, you know, good companies can come out of um, boom times when capital is available, but. The, the un- inconvenient truth is probably when there's too much capital around, there are a lot of businesses that get funded um, that probably um, don't have a sustainable position. Mm. That might be all right for the entrepreneur in the short term, but whether it's a good idea in the long term, or not, I don't know. So my advice would be if you're an entrepreneur look with a good idea wanting to raise capital, go for it. If you're an investor... Go cautiously because there is a large, it's supply and demand. There's a lot of capital at the moment chasing the opportunities. Um, And other markets are probably more reliable for venture capital in terms of the investor. So the US, UK and Israel, you know, they have a pretty long and well-developed venture capital early stage industry. Uh, We're getting there, but we're not in their league yet. I guess when you were talking earlier about that balance of you know the, the key things you look at with due diligence and data and looking at the people and a, and a bit of market research and, and your gut feel, um, I imagine that percentage of gut feel has to go up with a startup that is just not established, um, you know, has the market there but, yep. but needs a kicker to get going. Absolutely. Um, and obviously that's why it's high risk, right? Yeah, um, yeah. What advice would you always be to investors around that, you know, um, to... to take that point? Well, it is. Well, it's a good point. Um, look, f- from an investment point of view, um, you need to put a bit more emphasis on diversification, i.e. having a number of these punts, yep. let's call them. Yep. Um, so, you know, if you're investing in a later stage business where the chances of success or failure are sort of within a narrow band and you have a portfolio of five, maybe that's not too bad from a diversification point of view. Mm-hmm. If you're in the early stage game, you probably need a portfolio of 20. Yep. And that's what I was alluding to earlier when I said from an investor's point of view, mm. there's probably greater safety in the bigger markets because it's so much easier to build a portfolio of 20 um, companies in a reasonably narrow field if you're in an enormous market like the US yeah. Yeah. Uh, than, it is, than it is here. So, And those larger markets, the the um, investors can be more specialised too. So you can say, I want to make 20 investments in wireless network West Coast. Whereas in a country like Australia, you have to be, it's not, you can't find that number of opportunities in a narrow field. So you have to end up investing in a broader field and perhaps you understand less about what you're actually investing in. So it would probably be, would it be fair to say, make sure you're well hedged, but, have a go as well because you know some startups have done exceptionally well have a go don't put all your eggs in the one basket (laughs) because if you trip over you'll have a big lot of scrambled egg on the ground yeah (laughs) i I think it's running at something like one in nine or one in eight startups that are that are unsuccessful at the moment something around that i'd be surprised if it's that good i I would have thought the long-term statistics for startups um are maybe you know three out of ten don't make it Mm. Um, perhaps another three or four muddle along and then you get three or four absolute gold mines and you just hope that one of them seek. Yeah, <laughs> that's right, yeah. And, and or Atlassian, or I'll Atlassian, take either yeah, one. Yeah. But there's some great ones around. And, and, yeah. and I think my take out from that is the good startups would generally have the technical people that focus on solving a problem, not something they think is cool. 
Yeah. You know, if it's a, if it's a technology or a hardware. Yeah. Um, and then they have the entrepreneurial nous and connections. Yeah. To be able to contact and raise the right level of capital at the right time. So yeah. Is that? Yeah. Absolutely. Um, and I don't know a lot about Atlassian, but as I understand it, they developed a piece of software that helps people helps people write software and manage software. Mm. And it really was something that people needed. They weren't wrapped up in the, the sexy mousetrap. They actually had something that that a large number of people really needed, needed and still yeah. do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, they focused totally on a, a need yep. and delivered something to that need. Mm. That's good insights. Um, what about you personally, Peter, in your day-to-day life in terms of, you know, I'm really interested in teasing out, um, I suppose, habits of successful people. Have you got any, you know, rituals or thing, daily things you do, in particular with your, your day-to-day, um, to help help breed success or help you execute on what you want to what you want to achieve? Uh, well, these days I do a lot of yoga, believe it or not. Okay, yeah, great, <laughs> fantastic. And um, if nothing else, I guess that keeps me flexible. Hopefully it also helps me um, stay calm if I need to be need to be calm. Um, yeah, so I do, personally I do that. Um, but if you think of the skills you actually need, it keeps coming back to that disciplined analysis. Um, and perhaps if you are calmer, you're a better place to, to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you have to do your analysis. You also have to have some vision uh, going forward because you can't just analyse in the you know the last five years of what a business has done. Mm-hmm. You actually are really going to be successful or otherwise on what happens in the next five years. Mm-hmm. So you have to you have to look look forward, um, perhaps with a bit of hindsight on what's happened in the past. Um, and if you you know the if you look at the you've also got to avoid getting tangled up in market cycles too much. You can never pick bottoms and tops, but hopefully if you stay disciplined in your analysis, you'll avoid investing at the top of a cycle. Mm. And if you look at a, a Warren Buffett, who's you know the world's greatest investor, um, he'll say, when others are fearful, be greedy, and when others are greedy, be fearful. Yeah, yeah. So you, need, you, I, you, you can't pick the bottom and the top, it, no chance, but... You've got to try and avoid investing at the top. And jumping on, <coughs> jumping onto things which you think are red hot, but yep. it's, it's actually just yeah, sure. yeah, yeah. I mean, yep. I suppose the property market would be the most prevalent thing in our lives that we see in those yes. bubbles, right? Yes, yeah, yes. And look, at the moment, the elephant in the room is um, interest rates are at between fifty and two hundred year highs. No matter whether you measure it nominal or real. That's a big elephant, and it won't stay at those levels forever. So interest rates will move upwards. Mm. Um, it's only a matter of when, and that will change asset prices. Oh, they're in, in the low cycle. Yeah, sure. Low yeah, cycle. They're, they're the low cycle. Yeah, for example, I know my parents talk about 18 and 20%, and that, that, that would just... Yeah. I hate to think how many people in Sydney, particularly Sydney and Melbourne, that would cripple at the moment, right? A lot. A lot, yeah, yeah. which is a scary yeah. thought. Yeah. Um, yeah. Do you see anything on the horizon that would, um, you know, do you see any, obviously around, um, you know, particularly energy, energy at the moment, we're in the middle of an energy crisis. Um, that's that's a really big moment for a lot of businesses with everyone yeah. using it. Is there any other things on the horizon um, which you as an investor see that you're, you know, that, that people should be really wary of? Well, I think, I think um, 
you know, interest rates is a big one, mm. how low they are on a, you know, on a century scale. So um, you need, therefore, to be cautious about any businesses that are going to struggle in a rising interest rate environment. So, you know, highly geared infrastructure investments, potentially, you have to think, well, what would happen if interest rates rose by X? Um, the energy one you mentioned, really interesting. That's, that's more, uh, if you look at non-financial issues, um, you know, for 200 years we've had a, a energy based on fossil fuels and now that's starting to change. So that's a really interesting one, which um, will create stranded assets, avoid those, mm-hmm. but will create some terrific investment opportunities. Mm-hmm. Um, try and get into those. Sure. So that's, I think that's, you know, that's, that is a seismic shift, which um, we probably haven't had um, for a couple of hundred years, although you might say, well, we had coal for the 1800s and oil and gas for the 1900s. Um, for the 2000s, we're going to go in a different direction. Oh, it's really interesting. Yeah, and I, I feel like that's been <coughs> delayed somewhat through through uncertainty. Um, I mean, I saw on the news this morning that, that business confidence has, has risen and it's becoming quite strong. Um, so, yeah, I'd, I'd like to think the dynamics around that the opportunities within within energy um, would stabilise and, and start to provide some certainty there mm. so that we can move forward. And, and well, um, uh, my father, when he was 89, said, look, when he was, and I was, I was trying to explain to him about climate change and, and things, he said, well, look, we've been on fossil fuels for many generations, so it's going to take a generation or two to get right off them. Mm-hmm. And I guess that's what we're seeing at the moment. We're in the early stages of the transition. And, you know, there's, there's two steps forward, one step backwards, and some people are getting on the new bandwagon faster than others, and so it's, a, it's an interesting time. It's frustrating sometimes when we take the step backwards, but mm. the long-term um, change is inexorable. Yeah, for sure, and there's big opportunities in that. Yep. That's really great and, and great insights, Peter. So I think now I'd just like to, I suppose, um, take a step back and, and ask you, you know, based on your experience and all the things that you know now with time in the chair and, and going through all those different stages of investing um, money from banks and people's money and, and managing and being on boards and all the things that you've done over the, the 35 plus years. Um, if you had your time again or if you could take experience from, say, when you're coming out of uni from someone like yourself, what, what sort of things or insights would you, would you give? Well, um, well, stay open to learning from other people um, would be the main thing because, you know, even though I might have had some very good input from uh, people early on in my career, I remember the first boss I had in venture capital, the fellow called Ian Lansdowne, and he was, he was frustratingly meticulous on checking all the work we did. And if you gave him an investment recommendation, it would come back with more red ink on it than black ink. But I think a lot of people have had those people <laughs> in their careers, right, which has been quite good. <laughs> but that's the best thing he ever did for me because, mm. you know, I learnt the, learnt the disciplines. Mm. Um, so that was a great early stage. And obviously, from an investment point of view, looking at and listening to what Warren Buffett says, because here's a guy who's 86, his partner's 93. Um, on last Friday, they hosted their annual general meeting for six hours, and these guys have like got a combined age of 180 <laughs> years or whatever. Um, and 
you know, they're not trying to be across every latest little twist in um, technology or markets and so on. They're just applying basic principles to investing. Um, so they're the, you know, that's the thing I think I, I take from them that keep an eye on the big picture, the principles, and then, you know, do the best you can with working out the, the details. Okay. But watch the principles. And Buffett would say, I want to buy really good companies. Um, and I want to have them or to be investors in companies that are very well managed and um, and he if, that leaves him out of technology quite often so I, I've heard him say I think Bill Gates is a really terrific fellow and he's got a great business but I don't understand it right um, and that's you know he says himself that's that's a, a problem but his approach is to just invest in things he understands and with people that he likes so so I guess in summary sticking to your core uh, you know what you know and what you fundamentally know through experience um, and then being diligent about you know what you understand and, and, and not going out and just grabbing everything because it's shiny is that yeah. yeah that's it and the third thing which is probably over all of that is um, to 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 be in partnership with great people mm-hmm. in in those companies because you can never understand the business as well as they do. If you can understand it better than they do, you've got the wrong management sure. <laughs> because there's no way they should understand it less than you do. Um, so yeah, get in with the good, which is what Buffett's saying. This is a guy who's turned 72 grand into 75 billion um, over his career. Um, you know, you you want companies that are well well managed and then if they're well managed, they probably will have a good place in the sun and they'll sustain themselves through all the chops and changes of interest rates and market changes and regulatory and all that stuff. Mm. But if they're well managed, they'll find a way through that and take advantage of opportunities. I think everyone might go out and start reading Warren Buffett material after this podcast. <laughs> well, I would. <laughs> yes. his, his shareholder's letter was, is fresh. Sure. I think it's on Saturday's paper. Sure, great. <laughs> All right, Peter, well, look, I'd just like to thank you and congratulate you for participating in the Hubcast series. We've really appreciated your time and insights um, and, and sharing all your experiences with the listeners. So thank you. That's a pleasure. I've enjoyed it. And um, good luck with your um, Hubcast series. Thank, thank you. you very much.